from the book of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> You're like, that was a little short. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to be doing a Bible study uh, or, or a sermon series or whatever you want to call it on Ephesians. This is the book we're in. So we're just getting just the most, uh, just the smallest bit today. We're going to get it some into the background of this book, uh, this letter. And we're also going to, uh, to see why this is important for us. But I want to make sure, like I said, that you get uh, a little postcard. We've got extras. So uh, this is the name of this sermon series. Man, it feels fun to be doing sermon series. It's like flashback to my, my non-to-nom days. Actually, I, I, I don't think I've ever instituted a sermon series. I've sat through many of them, and I've made a lot of videos for them, uh, but this is maybe the first time I've ever done a sermon series. So I'm very excited. And the name of the sermon series is We Are All Saints. We are all saints, and we're going to see why. And guess what? Fun reveal. That's the name of this church plant. That's the name of this mission. Uh, This church plant, we're going to be called All Saints. All Saints Waco, or just All Saints. And we're going to see why that name is so important, and I could talk a lot about it. But I would say, you know, make sure you get at least one. This can go on your, uh, your fridge or be a bookmark or something. And there's some extras, too. So if there's someone here like, hey, they might be interested in this, uh, this church plant. You could pass it along and say, hey, if nothing else, there's some art, and you can either go on this side or this side. There's a little bit of art and a cool N.T. Wright quote uh, about the book of Ephesians, so that can be in your bookmark or something. So I'd encourage you to grab an extra one as well. But let's move into uh, a study of just these few verses and, like I said, the background of the book of Ephesians. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So like I said, today we're going to talk just about the background of of this letter in those first few verses. And I think this study is going to be essential to the life of this church. So instead of telling you up front the reasons I think it's going to be so crucial, I'm just going to dive right in, and I hope it's clear by the time I'm done speaking how absolutely critical these words are to those of us gathered here today, those who are going to gather in the the weeks, the days, the months, the years, hopefully, God willing, the decades ahead. And and I hope that whoever comes into this work, that uh, they would know that we began this work with a seed of God's word being planted in our, our hearts, our human hearts. So God, your word speaks. You speak to us now. All right, this sentence, Paul, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So first, how does Paul identify himself? What does he say about himself? It's okay, you can talk. It's, he's an apostle. Does anyone know what apostle means? A what? A student? No, it's, it's got a very, that'd be disciple. So Paul is not a disciple. He's an apostle. He doesn't make the cut for the 12, but he's the last apostle. Somebody, a, a leader who has met Jesus in person. That, that's definitely tied to it. But the actual, does anyone know Greek here? Anybody got any Greek? Yeah. 
since it is sent one. That is the literal meaning of the word uh, apostle. Paul, who is sent by Jesus Christ, by Christ Jesus, by Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, one who's been given a message and a mission by Jesus the King. Whenever you hear the word Christ, there's a lot going on there. And I'm not saying this is a direct translation or that this should be all that you hear. Please hear lots of things. Definitely don't hear a last name. Uh, Here, maybe a word king is helpful. Don't think that sums it up. Definitely when we hear the word Lord, king pretty much sums it up. But if you hear the word Christ, let the word king kind of dance around in your thoughts. So Paul has been sent with a mission and a message by the king, Jesus. Paul is sent by the true king, and he's sent... Uh, with a message and a mission. When did that happen? Well, that happened, we saw, uh, at least in part, in Acts chapter 9. So we find that bit of Paul's personal story and the church's history there. So at that time, Paul is named Saul, and he's been marching around the Middle East, and he's been trying his best to make sure that this new movement of Jesus freaks, who call themselves followers of the way, get stamped out. He's trying to make sure they get completely eradicated. He's on a mission, and he's been given a message. He's literally carrying letters here that allow him to capture people proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah, the King, and bring them back to Jerusalem bound in chains. Then what happens? Jesus shows up. He's knocked off his horse, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What in the world? Not only does he encounter the risen Jesus, he is told that the task he has taken up is evil and that this wicked work is having a greater and more grievous effect than he could ever have imagined. Saul, it turns out, isn't just persecuting Jesus' followers. He's not just attacking these followers of the way. He isn't only hurting people who are later going to be called Christians. He is attacking Christ himself. Saul, why are you persecuting me? So we have to recognize, as as Saul did on that day and came to recognize even more fully, that when we follow after Jesus, we don't just join a church or a movement or philosophy or an ideology. Something happens to us on an ontological level. Uh, What's that mean? It, it, It means that We, in some way, become Jesus without ceasing to be ourselves. And Jesus, in some way, becomes us without in any way uh, diluting who he is. So when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. That's, that's, That's it. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And when Jesus looks at us, he sees himself his own body, or a really helpful way of thinking about this, he sees his bride. I could tell you some stories of, of, of just only happened a few times, but where someone has done something in my presence or earshot to, uh, to upset Catherine. And I can tell you that I've never been more heated in all my life than in those few exchanges. Thankfully, very few and far between. It would have been better for the people 
to have said something mean to me. It would have been better for them to punch me in the face than say mean words in my earshot to my wife. This may be a little weird, and we can talk about whether it's a good idea or not, but it is a great illustration. So in a very traditional wedding, it ends with a proclamation of what? Does anybody know? I mean, there's lots of things said, but just the most, yes. Oh, that's a good one. That's not the end. That may be the end of the marriage. It may not actually get to that part. But the, the pastor, the priest says something. The, the bride and groom, they turn around, and what does the person say? Mr. and Mrs. Husband's name. Mr. and Mrs. Husband's name. We're going to see in this book of Ephesians how that is one of the primary ways that we understand the church's relationship with her Savior, introducing Mr. and Mrs. Jesus. That is the reality. So that Jesus can say, why are you persecuting me, even though Saul is attacking the church the same way a husband would say that about his wife, or I think vice versa, but there's something important about Jesus' husbandly role. Now, I don't really care. That's not a, the, the practice in weddings is not a place I want to plant my flag, a hill I want to die on. If someone ever came to me and said, we want you to say something different at the end of the wedding, I would, I would listen to it at least. But we can certainly re recognize the validity of the practice without denying the problems that are inherent when we live in a fallen world with sinful people. And, and it's actually helpful to me that that might be a controversial statement these days because it helps me know like it is controversial because it is radical. That is a radical statement. It is a statement of complete and total identification. Radical identification. What have I been saying? What's the phrase that keeps coming up in this church plant movement? Withness leads to oneness. That is a statement of witness and oneness being the same. Mr. and Mrs. Jesus. We're going to see how important marriage is again as we move into the book of Ephesians. So after Saul's confronted with this, con this incredible reality of the risen Christ, the risen king, and this incredible mystery of Jesus' self-identification with his church, we read, in Act, we read in Acts 9 that he, meaning Paul, was trembling and astonished, and he says, Lord, King, what do you want me to do? And then Jesus, Jesus the King, says to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So the very beginning, from the very beginning, like as soon as Paul submits his life to Jesus, he's sent by Jesus. From the very beginning, again, that's what the word apostle means. He's sent to the city, and there he encounters Ananias, who himself is foretold of that first hint of what God is going to do through this man named Saul. He tells Ananias, he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So there's that going sense again. He's going to go somewhere and bear my name before all these people. So Saul's going to get a new name. He's going to get a new mission. He's going to get new letters and new orders. He's going to be sent by the king of kings to the princes and powers of this world. He's sent to the Gentiles and to the Jews. He is sent, and he is an apostle. And instead of his original mission to, to bind Christians in chains and to bring them to Jerusalem to await trial, 
Paul himself is going to be bound in chains and brought to await trial before Caesar in Rome, which is where the letter to the Ephesians is written. He is writing this letter in a Roman prison, maybe in a, a maybe in his, maybe it's like a house prison. Maybe he's a, oh, what do you call it? Where you're, it's house just arrest. house arrest. Maybe he's under house arrest, but he is, he is, can't go wherever he wants. He is, he is bound. So literally the thing he was going to do to followers of Jesus uh, has been done to him in a different way. He is bound and he is awaiting trial. And he's awaiting his fate, but even at the moment of being under house arrest, he's still sent. He's an apostle with a mission and a message, even as he's imprisoned. I think that's one of the reasons Paul writes so many letters at this time. Letters have to be sent, right? Paul knows, like, even if I'm stuck in this room, I am sent. Uh, maybe good news for us is the Delta variant rages and we might find ourselves, hopefully not, but stuck in rooms again. That, that there's a sense in which Paul doesn't say, oh, well, I was an apostle, I was sent, but now I'm stuck. So I guess my mission is over. No, he starts writing letters and something happens then. His sentness gets joined in. Someone has to carry those letters. So his apostolic ministry then bleeds over into other people. And then whoever receives the letters, they're also sent out to do good work. So even us today, I think we can be really happy that Paul got arrested because he probably wouldn't take the time to write all these letters so that we can dig through his personal mail and benefit from it and even be commissioned by it. Thanks be to God, Paul got himself into lots of trouble and got himself arrested. So he's in Rome for a reason. So he's been sent by Lord, the Lord Christ, by King Jesus, to proclaim the good news even in the courts of Caesar himself. Jesus said this was going to happen, right? He said, I'm going to send him. He's going to bear my message and bear my name to the kings, to the Gentiles. So he's waiting to hear, get a hearing in front of the most powerful king in his day on the earth. The same Caesar, this is the same Caesar for whom the people of Ephesus had in their recent history, at the time of this letter's completion, constructed a massive monstrosity of a temple, which they dedicated to the honor of Caesar. So in the city of Ephesus, there's a giant temple to Caesar. Caesar worship, emperor worship is growing at this time. Caesar, uh, Augustus's birthday now marked the beginning of the calendar. Caesar, uh, his arrival on the world stage, his birth was uh, said by the historians in his day to mark the beginning of the good news by these Roman authors who had Roman purposes in mind. So Paul is really sent to the belly of the beast here. But years before he was sent to Rome in chains, he was sent to Ephesus to proclaim the gospel. So he's been to Ephesus before. Sometimes Paul writes letters and he's not yet met the people or he doesn't know them that well. This is a letter where he's writing to people he knows. At least some of them he knows. So his... First trip, okay, so he was in Ephesus in Acts 19. Uh, we see him in Ephesus for just, just briefly. That's likely around 52 AD. And then later, between 53 and 56 AD, sometime two and a half years in there somewhere. He's there. He, he's teaching uh, in the school of Tyrannus. He's hanging out, talking about the Bible every day for two and a half years, talking about Jesus and the message of the gospel. So he's been to Ephesus. He knows it well. Um, but it's probably been uh, six or seven years since he's been there. So there's likely people he doesn't know, 
that are receiving this letter as well. So 62 AD, he is in prison in Rome. 52 AD, 10 years earlier, roundabout, he makes his first visit to Ephesus. And his first trip to Ephesus resulted in a riot. It's because the message of Jesus had, as it often will, resulted in a, in a huge impact on the local economy, namely on the livelihoods of idol makers. Because while the temple of Caesar, it's a big deal, it's a big deal, but it paled in comparison to this other temple in the city limits, the temple of Diana or Artemis, who was called the guardian of Ephesus. The temple to her was larger than any stadium in the United States of America. So it's bigger than McLean Stadium. It's bigger than, uh, you know, home of the 12th man down there in College Station, even bigger than Jerry World up in Arlington where the Cowboys play. It is, I mean, these places are huge, right? So it is bigger than any stadium in the United States of America. And Paul, is, his preaching of the gospel read, led so many people away from worshiping Artemis, Diana, that a local silversmith whose primary income came from creating idols to the goddess, he got so mad and started like absolute all-out chaos in the city center. Paul was kept away by his friends. I'd still love to see this scene. They lock him in a closet or something. Uh, you know, and they're, they're right to do so because there's no way that Paul would have seen this many people and not thought, at last, <laughs> here's my moment to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the largest gathering of people that I could ever imagine and to win as many people to Jesus in a single moment. So his friends, fearing he couldn't read the room or read the riot, made sure he couldn't get anywhere near the ruckus. So Paul, see, Paul was always getting into trouble. And Jesus knew that he would. What did he tell Ananias back in Acts chapter 9? He would show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. See, being sent does not mean an easy life. Being called does not mean being comfortable. Being called to start a church plant doesn't mean that the power will work in the place where you uh, reserve the room for the power to work. It doesn't mean everything's just going to fall out before you. That's not how we know we're sent. That's not how we know we're a mission that things just work out for us. Most people think that they're called to something, right? Or that they want to be called to something. But we have to be careful. Because if we sift through and, and we seek and we scratch our heads and at last perceive that the source of our calling is from us, from within you, from listening to yourself or finding yourself or following your bliss, if that's where the source of calling comes from, you're going to burn out. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 again. What, what does Paul say? Where does Paul say his call comes from? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. By the will of God. Not from himself. Not because he's qualified. Not because he's the man of the hour or the guy with the answers or the coolest kid in town. He is an apostle not because he applied and had a good resume and got the right references sent in. He is an apostle by the will of God. He is one who is sent because God chose to send him. And, and we better be sure of it. You better be sure of it. We better be sure that our calls uh, are true calls from God because we're going to suffer for our calls if, there's anything, if they're worth anything in this life. So you better be sure that as you take up your cross, 
and find the hill that you want to die on, that you are called by Almighty God who has conquered through the cross and overcome death itself. How can you be sure of your calling? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, prayer, practices of examination that are designed for discernment, uh, and confirmation through Christ-centered, cruciform community. That's how you're sure of your calling. Paul is sure because Jesus confronted him personally, but then God also sent Ananias to confirm that message time and, and time and again even through the book of Acts. Paul receives confirmation from others in the church, even people like the leaders in Jerusalem, which he's often butting head with them, but they're always like, yeah, but you're sent. We know, we know they never question who he is and that, that he is called. So Paul, an apostle, by the will of God, to the saints, to the saints. This is not the most common greeting that Paul uses. Most often he will use the word ecclesia, uh, which we often translate church, the gathered, the assembled. Here he uses the word hagios, uh, holy ones. The word becomes saints in Latin. It's tied to the word uh, sanctuary. So a sanctuary is a set-aside place. Saints are set-aside people. Set-aside how? Set-aside by whom and for whom? Who is doing the setting aside, and for what purpose are these people being set aside? Holy places are always set aside by and for God. So even though people may participate in that setting aside, like the blessing of a house or, or the dedication of a church, only a holy God can make a place or an object or a person holy. Only Jesus, the holy king, can claim dominion on this earth on behalf of the heavenly realm. Only the Holy Spirit can sanctify. So it's actually possible to read Paul's earlier statement into this phrase as well. To the saints who are saints by the will of God. We're going to notice as we move through this letter something spectacular. Did you know that there are instructions in this letter? Did you know that Paul is writing to tell them that there are things they should avoid as well as things they should lean into and take up? But wait, we automatically say, I automatically say, they're saints. <laughs> saints don't need instruction. Saints don't need advice. Saints don't sin. Saints don't struggle. I want you to do something. This is weird, but I want, you to, um, I want you to find the word saints somewhere on the desktop of your brain. Okay, do you, do you see it? Uh, it might be a folder. Maybe it's a JPEG. Uh, whatever it is, I know it's weird. Just go with it. I want you to grab that icon, and I want you to drag it all the way to the recycling bin or the trash bin, whatever it is, whatever operating system you've installed up there. Okay, I want you to put it in, but this is really important. This is the most important part. Hit empty bin. <sighs> Do you feel it? So rewarding and refreshing. It's gone. It's gone. Friends, brothers, sisters, saints, we have to get this picture right. This is not being nitpicky. There are huge ramifications if we don't do the work 
to redefine this word, actually to return to the original definition. I love the saints of church history. I do. What a great cloud of witnesses. But we are all saints. If you have been called, if you have accepted the call, if you belong to the church, then you are a saint. You are holy. You are set aside. It does not mean that you are done, that you have arrived, that there is no work yet for you to do, but the work does not save you. It cannot save you. The work does not earn you the name saint. The real work that we have to do is learning to rest in the reality of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and what he wants to work in and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And to recognize that the reality of our identity is secure not through our accomplishments, but through grace. If you've put your faith in Jesus, then the Holy God has grabbed hold of you and set you apart by his power and for his glory. For his sake, he did this. And for the life of his world, you may not feel holy. You may not feel holy. But it doesn't depend on your feelings any more than it depends on your actions. The triune God has grabbed hold of you and his hold alone makes you holy. So let's read St. Augustine. Let's certainly do it. But let's get to know, uh, uh, know St. Britt or, or St. Keegan or St. Carlos or St. Schuyler or St. on and on and on and on and on. Let's get to know these people whom God has put in our life. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, Paul says in Colossians. So go ask him even about yourself. Let's not just get to know the saints that are out there. Let's get to know the saint that we don't even know yet. It's hidden from us. But Jesus knows that person. When he is revealed, we will be revealed with him. We will be like him. I don't care uh, what you call me, by the way. I mean, I do care some things you could call me. <laughs> Uh, but Matt or, or Matthew, uh, whatever, don't care. Uh, I, I don't need to be called like Father Matthew. It doesn't do, like it's not necessary for me to be in relationship. But I'll tell you that when I am, it, it, does, it does do something to me. I go, oh, all right, Father, Father, that's me. Oh, that's how, who I'm supposed to be. That's, that's what I am. It, it does something, it calls me up in a way. My, my nickname in, in Baylor's marketing department I, was, I guess it still is, uh, they just didn't know what to do with this priest who was making videos about line camp. Uh, so they called me St. Matthew. Uh, there was a lot of pressure there. I, don't feel the pressure. Don't feel the pressure. And here's why you shouldn't feel the pressure. You didn't earn it. You didn't earn it. So you can't lose it. The security of your sainthood it's not yours to worry about. Recognize the high and holy calling that it is. See that summit and be stirred to climb that mountain with Jesus, but know that the rewards are already yours in Christ. We are all saints. Okay, I know I need to wrap this up. I really don't want to. I just want to keep talking about the Bible, but we got to wrap it up. Just a few more things. There is no delineation here between any parties. There's no Jewish saints, 
There's no Gentile saints. There's no rich saints, no poor saints, no male saints or female saints, no Republican saints or Democrat saints or independent saints, no vaccinated saints or unvaccinated saints. There's no black saints, no white saints, no American saints, no Chinese saints. We're going to catch Paul's vision as we go along regarding what God does to dividing walls that seek to rend and wreck his church, his saints. But for now, I just you got to have that in mind as we move forward to the saints who are in Ephesus. Uh, the, only, the only thing that qualifies this at all is that these people happen to be in Ephesus. And guess what? Some copies of the letter don't even have those words. This was likely an encyclical letter, meaning it was meant to be cycled around. If you read it, you're going to find there are no particular problems. Like he's never like, okay, and, and tell these people, like they got to stop doing this or that. He doesn't get into any particular issues in this church. So it seems that likely this was meant to be circled around. Maybe it was sent to Ephesus first. It's a big city. It's around 250,000 people near the western coast of Turkey. And then it was probably copied and sent around to other churches in that region. But it's helpful for us to be able to know those words, uh, that those words can drop out. And so perhaps even more than some of Paul's other letters, maybe Romans is an exception as well, we can read this and not worry as much. We're still thinking about it, but we're not going to worry as much about what was going on in that particular place, uh, though it still absolutely matters. But we can think, what does this say to us? At last he writes that this letter is for those who are faithful in Christ. To the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ. Christ. Notice there's a dual location here. In Ephesus, in Christ. In, on earth, in heaven. That's going to be key as we move forward in Ephesus, in Christ. In Waco, in Christ. On earth as it is in heaven. In Ephesians, we're getting a glimpse into the big God-shaped story that Paul sees as the climax of the cosmos but which he also understands to be playing out in particular places, in ordinary life, in homes and in the marketplace, in work and in study, in families and in friendships, in the miraculous and the mundane. What does that phrase, faithful in Christ, mean? It is possible to read it, and we certainly shouldn't avoid the reading that it's about those who persevere in the faith. Jesus calls us to persevere, he asks us to hang on, not to be choked out by the worries of this world or become burned out because we didn't put our roots deep enough into him. Paul invites us to imagine living a life aimed at running the race and keeping the faith. Those things are good. But let's not ignore what came before. Paul is an apostle by the will of God. These are saints by the will of God. So these Ephesians and we Wacoans or Woodwayans or Golsonians <laughs> are saints by the will of God. Christ invites our faithfulness, but he is also faithful to us. And God names us faithful because of him. So while we are called to be faithful to Christ, we know that we will fail and we will falter. We will sin and we will stumble. But we have been saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, so that none of us can boast. And so when God the Father looks at us, when he looks at you, I said it before, I'm just going to say it and end it here. 
he sees Jesus, his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. When temptation comes our way and we give in, the father sees Jesus rebuking Satan in the wilderness. When we do those things which we ought not to do and fail to do those things which we ought to do, the Father sees Jesus climbing Calvary obedient even to death on the cross. So you may fail on your own, but in Christ you are faithful. You are faithful in the King whose work covers you. You were not only saved by this work, you will be sanctified by it. But long before you comprehend that reality, it begins to work on you and in you and on your behalf. Long before you can own the name saint for yourself, the Father calls you holy and Jesus calls you his saints by the will of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.